What's up, world? We're back with the Free the Work podcast. For the next few episodes, we're bringing you Free the Work Focus, Pride, a special miniseries supported by our friends at GLAAD, spotlighting some of today's leading LGBTQIA creators. On this episode, GLAAD's head of talent, Anthony Ramos, chats with prolific, multi-hyphenate creator, Rain Valdez. Together, they talk about queer and Philippinex representation in media, creating your own roles, and what's next for the Emmy-nominated actress, writer, director, and producer. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the Free the Work podcast miniseries supported by GLAAD. If you're just getting familiar, Free the Work is a nonprofit global initiative and searchable talent discovery platform for underrepresented creators. And just as a disclaimer, we got to say the views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily state or reflect those of Free the Work. I'm Anthony Allen Ramos, GLAD's head of talent. And today I'm so excited to be joined by a friend, someone who's so talented, a multi hyphenate extraordinaire. Rain Valdez. Not only is she prolific in front of the camera, having earned an Emmy nomination for the web series Razor Tongue, but behind the scenes, she's also a writer, a producer, a director. How are you? Hi, Anthony. I'm good. How are you? I'm it's- loving this Filipina power moment you and I are having right here today. I love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, you know, let, let's just kind of go back and, you know, let's go back to the beginning, like they say. Um, you know, you really, you know, thinking about the Emmy nomination and like I mentioned, all the producing and writing that you do. But tell me how you, tell me your story. Like, how did you get here? Like, what, what was the beginning like of you, you know, kind of wanting to take over Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, well, it started really young. I was maybe like five or six years old when I knew I wanted to be an actor. I knew I wanted to be in front of the camera. So it started there. But where I grew up in Guam, I migrated from the Philippines where I was born to Guam. We just didn't have a lot of access to film and TV. It's a very small island. So when I graduated from high school, that's when I took the leap and bought a one-way ticket to Los Angeles. That sounds like a movie in itself, bought a one-way ticket to LA, you know, like. (laughs) Yeah, it was, you know, one of the biggest risks I've ever done um, at the time, one of the biggest decisions of my life. You know, I was already sort of transitioning. So when I got to LA, it was a little easier because nobody knew who I was, nobody knew my past. And so I was just rain and everybody just kind of accepted that. And one of the first things I did was got myself in an acting class and I studied acting for a really long time while I was waiting tables and doing a little bit of modeling here and there. And, but, you know, it got to a point where the auditions got a little frustrating and it kind of gave me a sense of what this industry is really all about and what it's really like. A lot of roles that I was auditioning for were either stereotypical or misogynistic view of of who women are um, like what were some of those roles what like what, what like what was the characters they were putting you up for well just like you know the hot nerdy asian oh that or and some of the some of the descriptions were like super gorgeous it, you could it was clearly written by men right and as much as i love to 
you know, embrace my beauty and my femininity, it's also very intimidating to read a page and kind of think about, oh gosh, do I actually look like that? So it became very quite clear that if I didn't look a certain way, then I probably wouldn't get the opportunity. So I, I, I quit acting for a little while and uh, got a job in post-production and then I just started working my way up in post-production. I started out as an assistant editor and eventually became the senior digital intermediate producer for a few post-production facilities. So I learned a lot about filmmaking through that. I learned how to finish a film, more importantly, and I, that's kind of when I started, oh, well, I have this resource, I have this knowledge of how to finish a film. If I wrote something and if I shot it, I could bring it to my post house and finish it and make it look amazing. So that's kind of how I started with my filmmaking process. I knew that if I wanted to act, I would have to write something and cast myself in it and, and produce it. A lot of times in this industry, People don't really know what you're capable of until you show them. And so I just kind of figured out a way to start showing people what I was capable of. Being Filipino-American and being trans, we're one, underrepresented, but we're also extremely underestimated. And so if you don't take the step to show what you're capable of, this industry might not never know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's... At the time, it was out of necessity, or at least I felt like, okay, I have to do this if I want to act. But now it's sort of, it just, I realize it's just a part of my creative process. Like, I love being a part of the beginning stages of creating a project, the, the writing and the producing and, and directing, as well as acting in it. But I, I do enjoy so many aspects of, of that because what actors don't have at all in this industry is uh, some sort of creative control of, of their, their career. And so for me, once I started doing it, it just made me realize, oh, if I continue to do this, I can have some sort of control of what my career could look like and, and control the characters I get to play. Mm -hmm. What year was that that you bought your one-way ticket? I moved out here in 2000, so it's been a while, yeah. I said, yeah, 21 years. You know, it's funny that what really resonated with me was is kind of showing people what you're capable, capable of because it reminded me of myself when I was at Access Hollywood before I came to GLAAD. Like I knew someone asked me like first day on the job, like what I wanted to do. I was like, I want to be like one of the hosts. I want to be like, you know, one of the on camera people. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I quickly realized that I was going to have to like show everyone because, you know, everyone says that I want to be on TV. I want but I had to prove myself and I showed them that I could do it. And then I basically, like you said, like I, I like said, I went into like post-production. I was doing like the editing and like all of, I was doing clearance at one point, but it's like, I learned everything that I could about the process. And it ultimately made me a better producer and it got me to ultimately doing that. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of learning everything, you know, and like, just, it makes, I mean, like you said, you're kind of creating your own opportunities. Yeah, you're creating your own opportunities. And it's also so much more fulfilling mm -hmm. when you're not relying so much on an industry that 
wasn't designed for you to begin with. You know, that's something that I've had to come to terms with and in a way mourn. I had to mourn the idea that I, that I'm not really what this industry considers, you know, the next best thing or the next big thing. There was a time where I remember realizing that there's no way anyone would ever put me in a romantic comedy as the lead. I remember when I realized that it made me really sad. So I had to kind of come to terms with that and, and almost let the dream go in a way. Do you think that's still the case, even with the way things are evolved? I mean, do you think that you still wouldn't be given that opportunity? I think it's going to happen when I make it happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's a tremendous amount of room for it. And the possibility is there. But I also still think that there's not enough of us in the decision-making process to actually give it the proper go-ahead and the proper trust and also the amount of risk it's going to take to do that. I don't, I don't think that we have those people in place yet. And so for me, if it's something that I want to do still and, and, and make happen, I kind of have to figure out how to do it myself and find the people who want to champion that story. Yeah. That I get to be the protagonist. No, absolutely. And, and it's like, I'm thinking back, I think it was at the end of last year, I was interviewing um, Nico Santos, another fellow, fellow Filipino. And we were like, let's make the LGBTQ, like Filipino version of Friends. And I was like, why not? I was like, that's what I, I mean, I was like, we should, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you have to, I was like, let's call Alec Mappa. Let's like, because it's like, I, you know, it's like, even though like Crazy Rich Asians, which Nico is also in, but you know, he does play a queer character. But I remember like just seeing that movie and I, I was like really just going to see it to be entertained. But I was like, when I saw someone, like so many people that looked like me, cause you know, I'm, you know, of mixed, um, being half Filipino and like Henry Golding being half Malaysian and half um, English. I was like, it's crazy for me to see someone that looks like me, although I'm not nearly as handsome as Henry Golding, I'm just saying, but like see someone like that leading, being the leading man in a big budget movie. I was like a huge deal for me, you know? First of all, I think you're very handsome. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but yeah, I completely agree. I, there are very few representation, very mm -hmm. few films and TV shows that, that represents the intersections of the communities that I am a part of. So when you start to clock that you're nowhere to be seen, it makes it really hard to figure out where you fit in the world, let alone in an industry that you really want to work in. So I, and I love that idea of <laughs> a friend's version of, you know, of our community, because I think that one, Filipino Americans is the second largest migrated communities here in America after Chinese Americans. And so there's enough of us to know that this content is is not only needed, but it's necessary. Completely. You know, thinking back on when you, like when you talked about some of those cringy audition characters that you were given in the beginning, I think, you know, did you find that there was like an over-sexualization of like the Asian female character or, or like, I, cause I, I feel like 
there have been so many of those representations that people put on TV. And, and it's, you know, we, we, we need to show that Asian women are many other things beyond just like, you know, the sex symbol or the, you know, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of, I mean, when I think back, it's kind of, it's, it's funny to think of the stuff that I had to put myself through, but you know, I either had to be a super nerd, right. Or super hot and sexy. Mm -hmm. so definitely hypersexualized or I have to kick butt, <laughs> you know, like I had to like, I, I remember auditioning for like assassin roles or, you know, somebody who like really fought a lot and, but didn't have a lot to say. And I auditioned for a lot of prostitutes, like a, a lot of sex mm -hmm. workers. Yeah. It, it was really sad because I remember just like, I remember just not identifying with any of those things. Right. As much as I would like to think that I'm sexy, I don't, I don't know that I exude the kind of sexiness that they were looking for. And a lot of times I was actually told no, right? So I was never Asian enough. I was never sexy enough and never trans enough for some of these opportunities. You know, it, it does a number on you for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. You say never trans enough. Like, what, what what did people? You really got that kind of feedback from from people when you were trying out for stuff? Yeah, sometimes I still do. Actually, I don't even know what that means. I mean, I it's crazy to think that that someone would even say something like that. But well, if you look at the history of trans representation, mm -hmm. a lot of the characters that are out there uh, were either played by were mostly played by men. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I think they have an idea of what trans is, especially if it's written by someone that's not in our community. Oftentimes it's a transitional story or an oppression story. So they're not looking for the person who's done their transition and is actually living their life. They're looking for someone who's just starting out and is, you know, maybe looks a certain way and kind of reminds them of, you know, the opposite gender or their assigned gender, I should say. And so, you know, it doesn't really give room for the the different types of trans identities in the spectrum. Right. And yeah, and a lot of it is just because they have this idea in their head of what of what trans is based on what they see in the media and based on what actors have portrayed. So that's what they're going. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just saying that's what they're basing it off of. Yeah, and I think, you know, just, you know, to bring up, I think obviously it's important to remember that GLAAD, we not only insist, but enforce that trans representations must be played by trans actors. There's no question, there's no wiggle room about that. And obviously trans stories specifically should be told by trans people. So, you know, we're really, because it's all about opportunity, you know what I mean? And plus it's like, that's a an identity that, you only truly know if you are, if you have a trans experience, you know? If you lived it. Yeah. If you lived it, exactly. Um, thinking about, I guess the big question is like, you know, talking about with you creating your own lane and creating opportunities for yourself, what would you say is your drive for storytelling right now? What is it you want to put out into the world and get made by Hollywood? Well, definitely authentic, nuanced stories by Filipino Americans and transgender identifying folks, but not specifically about the identities, more really about our stories, about the diaspora of our experience. 
you know, stories that are universal and relatable. I, I, an another thing that I came across as, uh, as, as a creator is, well, it's too niche. That's too, mm -hmm. we already have an LGBTQ story or this character on the show, but if done with the right people, I actually think that our stories are very universal because it's about relationships and it's about family and it's about finding your authentic selves. So those are the stories that I want to keep telling and also in the genres that I think are, well, okay. So I think that romantic comedies are, or is the most political genre there is because it, it serves as propaganda for who gets to be loved, right? right. It establishes mm -hmm. to the world who and what and when someone gets to experience love. So I, I, I want to tell stories in, in the genres where we've been completely absent from or completely erased or reduced as a side character or the butt of the joke and, right. and kind of just show the world, mainly our communities that, hey, this is for you. This is for you. This is for us. We get to have this. We get to celebrate our identities. We see you. You belong in this world, even though TV and media has told you otherwise. And so um, I never got that growing up. I never got to see a Filipina-American trans woman being successful, doing the damn thing, <laughs> and mm. being celebrated and acknowledged. I didn't get to see that growing up. And so if there's a young person out there who's like me and gets to see me or some of the other actors, actresses that are in my community and get to feel validated, but also get to feel less alone, then I feel like I've, I've done my job. I love that. It's funny. I would actually, when you mentioned that the community, I, you know, there is a, a large group of queer Filipina, Filipino, people working in Hollywood. I mean, thinking, you know, Gina Rosero, um, the film Lingua Franca, which I know yeah. is about, yeah. It's, you know, there's, do you find that there is kind of like a, like a sisterhood or like a deep connection with some of those creators and yourself? Absolutely. I get very excited when I see Isabel succeeding and just, ugh, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It's very rare for me to find someone who's like me and also have the opportunity to support them. It's, it's, it's very rare. So we, we support each other, we champion each other. And same thing with Gina, we're very close. And it's, you know, it's such a small community, but at the same time, it's from where we were five years ago, it's actually, it's, it's pretty big at this point. You know, it's like, it's yeah. there's so many of us and we keep finding each other and and each of us are so, this is why it's so important to dismantle this idea of, of niche or this idea of, you know, one represents all is that Isabel's creative mind and, and, and storytelling abilities is so vastly different from mine and mm -hmm. it's a different kind of storytelling. It's a different kind of perspective, different genres if you will and but just as needed just as necessary as my stuff is that's what i love about 
what's happening now and more of us finding each other and more of us getting opportunities is that we get to kind of show the different authentic stories that actually exist within within our communities. Yeah, and like thinking just about my experience, like I want to see a story where, like I would say, I grew up very, like I very much identifying with the white side of my culture because I grew up with my mom. And, you know, I wouldn't say it was, I, I mean, it wasn't until much later that I actually like identified and realized that I have this whole other part of myself that I don't know a lot about. And so like, I would love to see a story like that where, you know, someone goes back, you know, who grew up maybe a little more with, you know, identifying with their Caucasian side and then going back and like learning about their other Asian side. Cause that's really like what I've been on this path about. And uh, it's funny, Gina and I, right before the pandemic, were supposed to, she was supposed she was supposed to show me how to make lumpia, but obviously we've been separate for a while because of the pandemic. But I see that she's making them even with Beyond Meat, which I'm all about. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I know I want I want Gina to have like some sort of cooking show or something. I would totally tune in for that. <laughs> yeah, I think I've talked about that at one point, and I I think it's in the. It's in the plans. I, oh, good. I, I, we'll put it out there. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you are from the Philippines. You ended up going to, uh, living in Guam and then went from Guam to LA. What was it like to be a trans, or, or I guess just a queer person in Guam? Because I really don't have any sort of context on what that would, was it accepting? Were people, you know, what was that like? Good question. Guam is, no, I, I wouldn't say it's very accepting. I think maybe more so now it is. But mm-hmm. Guam has very deep-rooted traditional values and religious beliefs that stem from Catholicism um, and Christianity. And so so no, because of that, uh, because the, the, the island is predominantly Catholic and, and Christian, it, it wasn't very accepting um, growing up. So it, it was very difficult. And um, I mean, I got out of there as soon as, as, soon as I could. Mm-hmm. But it, it is a great place to raise a family and, and, you know, make friends, I think. I mean, at least for me at the time when I was there, there was a lot of outdoor activities to do. The beach is five minutes away. And you, you know, just like in any other place, even in the in the the red states, um, there's always a way to find each other. There's always a way to find community. And I was very fortunate enough that I had loving and supporting friends when I was trying to figure out who I was and I was transitioning. So lucky for me that I, I had that. The struggle was with my family mostly. And it wasn't really until I moved out here where they got to really understand what was going on. And I think for them, when they finally saw that it wasn't just me and that it was other trans people mm-hmm. out in the world, and that's when they started to realize that, um, well, they start to let go of the idea that that I'm not, that I'm not, you know, that I, that, that I don't belong in this world or that I think, I think mainly what their fears were associated with that no one was ever going to love me. Right. You know, or that because of the Bible, I, you know, what I'm doing is a sin. And so there's a lot of those archaic beliefs that I think still has a lot of work to do. Um, right. Um, How is your relationship with, with your family now, if you don't mind me asking? Are they, have, you said they've 
or they've kind of come up a little bit of way at least. Yeah. Well, you know, my younger sisters are, are very supportive and um, my mom passed away in 2009, but she was very supportive before, before that. And um, I have family in the Philippines and I'm actually not, they seem supportive like through social media, but, I, but I'm actually not that sure because I, I, I haven't spent that much time with them. I do have an older sister who still has a little bit of trouble getting past it. So that's the toughest relationship uh, in my life right now is, is my older sister. And, you know, and she goes back and forth. There are times when she's, you know, we're just chatting and it's totally fine and we're just sisters. But then there are times when you can tell she struggles with what she believes in and, and you know, what I represent. And that, that's been a challenge and continues to be so. When was the last time you were in the Philippines? Mm, 2009. How is it in terms of, you know, being a queer person in the Philippines? Is it more, is it accepted or are people still pretty, you know, um, traditional, do you think? I think it's still very traditional. Yeah. But like I said, no matter where you are, you can find community. And there's trans people in some, in, in some degrees, of acceptance are able to hold community and do pageantry and um, an entertainment. So there is a place for it, but I don't think it's legally recognized yet. And I think that's kind of where the colonized mentality kind of gets in the way and, and where religion plays a huge part as well. Because of those things, it's really hard for our communities to be completely free from from prejudice and, and and bigotry and it's and discrimination it's 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 a tough place to be i think in the philippines yeah. well thank you for sharing that i want to move on to something um more happy and pleasant let's talk about the emmy nomination for razor tongue for you you know that was a huge deal like it was i remember we talked about it i was so excited for you uh such a weird time too because i was like re- like right in the middle of the of the pandemic what was tell me that experience uh i mean from getting the nomination to doing your virtual red carpet in your yard which i love to you know unfortunately you didn't win but i think here just so you know i have a philosophy on that so I'm glad it didn't happen in that year because when it does happen, when you do win the Emmy, I want it to be in a year when you can be on stage and you can yeah. be in the audience and you can take the, you know, I don't, we don't want to do it in a pandemic year. But tell me about all of that because that was that was amazing and, and, and so well-deserved. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, you know, 2020 was a really interesting year for me because it took away so many things, right? So many opportunities, so many normalcy. So I kind of had to shift gears and focus on other things like my self-care and and my family and my friends and really allow myself to just like clock out and take a break because I'm I work all the time and I'm all over the place. And so I wasn't expecting very much, to be honest. I was kind of at peace with, hey, if it happens, it happens. And, you know, I wasn't even promoting it or doing a lot of social media. I remember like a week before voting closed, I got a text from a friend and they were like, oh, I voted for you. And and I was getting multiples of those because it was like a week before voting. And I was like, oh my gosh, I should probably 
say something. So <laughs> I went on social media and I went on my emails and I just started like campaigning. <laughs> at the, and it was so last minute. It was so like that we didn't have a budget to do it. We didn't have a platform to campaign or whatever. And I didn't have a PR person at the time. So, you know, I wasn't really expecting anything. And then when it happened, I was supposed to be doing something else, but that got rescheduled. So I was actually free. And my assistant was like, well, you know, you can watch the Emmy announcement now. And so I did, it was Laverne and, you know, Leslie Jones and a bunch of other people making these announcements, but they only announced the big names uh, on the television. So, but something told me, well, you should just look anyway on their website to, you know, just, just to see. And so, so I did, I went on my laptop and I just, I kept scrolling and it was like 35 pages in, I finally found my category and there was my name along with Caitlin Olson and Anna Kendrick and Jasmine Cephas Jones and, and one more other uh, person. And I was truly shocked. I started shaking. I didn't know what to do with myself. And then, and then I was getting a bunch of messages, a, a, a bunch of texts and emails and phone calls. Right. People were seeing the same thing. But I texted my uh, assistant and I was like, oh my God, I, I'm nominated. And he was like, oh my God, I'm looking at it right now. And so it was a lot of that, a lot of just like, oh my God, you're nominated, you know? Um, and one of the first people that I texted was Laverne because um, I, I knew she probably didn't see it because she was just coming off of finding out that she was nominated. So she sent me the sweetest, most beautiful message after I told her. And I thanked her, you know, for making this a possibility for, for more of us. Yeah, and you know, I think I like danced every night for like three weeks straight. <laughs> I just had so much excitement and so much energy that every night I was dancing and, and, and celebrating and I was also very appreciative that it happened at a time where I can re actually reflect on what this means for me and, and for my communities. Because if it was the year before and I was, you know, on the red carpet and doing so many things and being all over the place like I usually am, I don't know that I would have appreciated the gravity of it all. I think I would have been just too distracted. And so I did appreciate that, that I had the time to really just sit in the glory of it all and the historical aspect of it all as well. Because I was constantly being reminded by the media and my community as well of what this meant, not only for me, but what it meant for them. You know, it was a very special time. And yes, it did suck during a pandemic and I didn't get to celebrate in ways that would have been really cool, you know, like celebrating with you or, you know, yeah or with Gina in person, I didn't get to do any of that. And so, but it, it, it was still, it was regardless of that, it was still very, very special. Yeah, it was, that it is, it was so special. I think the next Emmys will be in person. So what, I mean, that's a good, good uh, kind of thing to wrap up. What is next for you? What are you working on? What, what do you have in the works? What do you want to do? Yeah, thanks. I, um, well, I'm going to continue creating. I think the Emmy was was so validating in a way that 
you know, before you kind of wonder, am I doing the right thing or am I just wasting my time? And so the Emmy was just like, no, you're doing the right thing. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, creating, making opportunities for yourself and for other people. So for me, it's like, okay, I could relax a little bit and I could continue doing what I'm doing without second guessing myself. So I do plan on creating more. I have a season two of Razor Tongue in the works. Amazing. Yeah, thanks. It's already written and we have an amazing cast. It's a bigger show and Angelica Ross is attached to produce and she's also she also has a role and love. Kate, yeah. yeah, and Jamie Clayton is also joining the cast as well as Alexandra Billings. So um I'm very excited about it. And then I have my romantic comedy feature, Relive a Tale of an American Island Cheerleader that I'm doing with Rachel Laco and Sean Joshi of Faye Pictures. And I'm really excited about that because it's getting, it's coming a lot closer to actual production, which is early of next year. And actually flying out, I haven't told very many people, but I'm actually flying out in June uh, to Guam and to Hawaii to do our scouting and, and meeting with crew and, and whatnot. Um, so I'll be gone for the month of June, just working on Relive and figuring out where we're gonna be shooting and figuring out all the logistics. Relive was the one that you did the uh, that live reading for during the pandemic, right? Yes. I remember that. <laughs> that was awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about it. And we just did a overhaul rewrite of the script based on some of the notes that we've been getting. And I'm really excited about this draft. And I think this could be this. I mean, this could be the close to final draft before we before we start shooting. That's huge. Thank you. And just in case, can you share with the people listening a little, like the basic, the premise of what that story is, Relive? Yes. So Relive, a tale of an American Island cheerleader is about a transgender woman who is successful and, you know, has been away from her own, her home island for 10 years since she graduated. So uh, I took a lot of inspiration from my own life. <laughs> but she goes back home after 10 years because she's been invited to her high school reunion. And the high school reunion is a uh, do-over week. So she gets to go back and be the person she always wanted to be, but she didn't get to be in high school. So she goes back and tries out to be a cheerleader. But um, when she gets home, there's a lot of secrets that she discovers about her family, about her mom's um, ailing sickness, and her transphobic sister is hiding something from her as well. And so there's all of these things that she discovers that becomes a bit more important and becomes a little bit more challenging to, you know, do the do-over week. But she wants to do it and her mom's encouraging her to do it because she gets to relive her life which you know not many of us get an opportunity to i mean i think it sounds fabulous i I'm, i can't wait to see that thank you Is it, do you i mean are you hoping it's a big screen or netflix or something along those lines do you have any thoughts on what you want it how you want it to live i mean the dream would be like crazy rich asians <laughs> you know like yeah. big budget like red carpet opening and then theatrical worldwide or whatever and then and then streaming but that so that's the dream of course but you know i'm also very open to it being a straight to streamer if we find the right partnerships right 
put it out there. Well, I have no doubt that if anyone can make it happen, you definitely can. Well, Rain, thank you so much. And thank you to Free the Work for having us. Be sure to search freethework.com for more filmmakers to work with and follow the Free the Work podcast on Spotify and all other podcast platforms. We'll be dropping a new episode every Thursday through Pride Month, so you don't want to miss it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can watch Rain's web series, Razor Tongue, on YouTube now. And don't forget, follow Free the Work and Glad on all social media and podcast platforms for updates on the next episode drop.